Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at proclaimkc.org. Passage today, from Genesis chapter 1. In the Bibles, if you're using them on the tables, it is on unmarked page one. And our reading today is from Genesis 1 1 and 1 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You may be seated. Let's, let's pray as we get started this morning. Lord God, we marvel at the work of your creation, uh, at the beautiful morning that you've given us today, at the sun that rose yet again. We thank you for the blessings that you have given us uh, through your creative work. Lord, we confess that too often uh, we become distracted. Lord, we see ourselves only or we're distracted by the beauty and wonder of the things that you've created and we stop short and we don't allow these things to turn into, to turn our eyes to you, but rather we turn our eyes to ourselves and our want and our desire for things. Lord, I pray that you'd give us humility this morning as we come to your word, that you'd help us to see our tendency to bring glory to ourselves rather than to you, and most of all, that you would renew in us our wonder at the work of your hands and renew in us an awe of who you are, God. We thank you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Robert Boyle lived in the 1600s. He was born in Ireland. He spent most of his life around London. And he was uh, what you would call a natural philosopher. He was best known for his work in chemistry. In fact, he's widely regarded as the father of, or one of the fathers of modern chemistry as we know it. He, he discovered the first law of gas, aptly named Boyle's Law. So they were good at science, less at creativity and naming things. His scientific work also included uh, work in hydrostatics, physics, medicine, earth science, natural history, a lot of different Fields. He's regarded as one of the pioneers of the modern scientific method. He was also a Christian. And using his intellect, he wrote Christian devotions. He wrote essays on ethics, on 
the languages of the Bible, theological tracts, and much more. He widely supported Christian missions, passionately supported Christian missions, funding the translation of the Bible into multiple languages, basically by himself. He was driven by his faith in Jesus Christ, and he saw science and his work every day as a means by which to bring glory to God, and to know his creator, and to worship him. As we begin the first chapter of Genesis and look at how the Bible describes the world in ancient uh, times, questions often arise about science. Much of the debate centers around these first few chapters of Genesis. And Genesis chapter 1 in particular, most people, including many Christians, see an inherent competition between science and faith, between science and the Bible, between science and Jesus. Dozens and dozens of scientists throughout the last few centuries, including Robert Boyle, would disagree with that conclusion. And so as we jump into Genesis 1, before our minds begin to jump to scientific textbooks or debates we've had uh, in the past, or even to a friend who maybe stopped attending church because it They felt like it didn't make sense with science. I want to remind us of something I briefly mentioned last week. Genesis 1, Genesis, the book of Genesis, was not written as a response to science or to evolution. And we need to understand that as we come to this first page of the Bible. Wasn't written as a response to atheism. Atheism and evolutionary theory would have been completely foreign concepts to the audience that Genesis 1 was written to. Now, that's not to say that it's irrelevant to our conversation today or to the conversation today, nor that we shouldn't be thankful for the work of Christians who are scientists today as who look in within science to bring glory to God and to bring betterment to his creation and to us as humans, I doubt there's any higher calling for a scientist than this. But we need to understand that Genesis is not, was not meant to be a scientific textbook. We need to start in the same place in Genesis as we would with any book of the Bible that we come to, We need to come to the text itself, understanding it in the context of the book at large, understanding Genesis 1 in the context of Genesis at large and and the Bible as well, and understanding it in the historical context it was written first. In other words, we need to understand the author's intended meaning for this passage first and foremost, and then out of that make implications and applications for ourselves today, rather than starting with scientific theory or thought or hypothesis, and then bringing that to the text and trying to pick around the verses of Genesis 1 for answers or for objections. And so over the next four weeks, we are going to stay right here in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. This very first section of Genesis, as I 
shared last week, all of Genesis is broken up by this common phrase, this is the generations of, and we see that phrase 10 times, 10 different sections, but this very first section of the book does not have that phrase because it serves as a prologue for everything that is going to come afterwards. And so we're going to spend four weeks in this prologue, the first two weeks looking at the creative narrative itself. And then the second two weeks, we're going to look at two major themes that first arise here in this chapter that run throughout scripture. The first being man created in God's image and the second being the idea of Sabbath. So that's where we're going to go for the next few weeks. And today I'm going to concentrate mostly on these first two verses of Genesis. These first two verses that serve almost as an introduction to the introduction, if you will. And I mean to answer from the text three basic questions. First, who created? Second, what was created? And third, why does that matter? Why, why it matters? So here's the real dividing line. The real dividing line is not between science and the Bible. Whether you compare Genesis to atheism or to other ancient creation stories, you'll find the same heart issue at work. Both of these competing worldviews desire to replace the true creator God with gods of our own making. In essence, to turn the attention from creator to creation. To steal from God the glory that is rightfully his as the creator of everything. This, in fact, is the nature of sinful humanity itself. You see, the real dividing line for us is who gets the glory, us or God. Paul describes it well in Romans 1, 19 through 25. Here's what he says in Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So we all are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, for they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator or the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, what Paul's saying is, God, we can know things about God. We can know this creator, God, in some sense that he exists from the natural world around us. And yet, even though that is plain, we exchange worshiping that God believing in that God, giving that God the glory he deserves for worshiping things created in the image of man. And, and you might say, well, we're not some ancient people that builds a golden 
object and worships it, but yet we worship objects every day, do we not? Our possessions, our positions, our our experiences. If the book of Genesis is about how God keeps his promises, who that God is becomes an an important and critical question. Is he like the other gods of the ancient peoples that surrounded Israel? Is Christianity basically the same as every other religion? Or does God not exist at all? And the heart of the creation narrative of Genesis 1 responds to these questions with a resounding no. No. God is the sovereign creator of everything. He's the central figure. He's the main character of the Bible and all of history. So let's look briefly at that first question. Who created? Genesis 1 starts with this sentence. In the beginning, God created They made a pretty plain plain there. The one who created is the one whom this book, the Bible, calls God. That's further intensified by the fact that the Hebrew word behind the word create is this word bara. It's only used in Hebrew for the creative works of God Himself. Throughout Scripture, people form and people build and people make, but all those are different Hebrew words. People don't bara. Only God does that. God creates in a way totally different and beyond how you and I create things. This God that does this was before anything. Not even a seed of the universe existed without God's creative work. In other creation myths in ancient times, there were often multiple gods. These gods were more or less qualitatively like people, though quantitatively much more powerful. Their power was finite. It was just more than our power would be. And by their actions in the pre-existing matter through some sort of divine wrestling matches or divine romances, creation as we know it came about as a byproduct. But then you insert the story of Genesis 1. God, the God of Genesis 1 is qualitatively different. Do you understand what I mean? That God is not just quantitatively different than us. He is not just bigger. He's not just a bigger version of humans. He is qualitatively different. He creates in a qualitatively different way. He is the one true creator. From the beginning, he created. That was his plan, and that was his intention. But that leads us to our second question. What did this God create? And verse one continues and tries to spell it out very, very plainly. God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth is a Hebrew idiom, a figure of speech, right? And what it means is sort of like 
God created everything from the heavens to the earth and all that's in between. He created all of it, every single bit. And that point is reiterated throughout scripture. John 1, 3 says, all things were made through him and with him was not anything made that was made. Acts 17, 24 says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Now there's probably a half dozen or more other verses that I could have pulled there that declare God created every single thing. You see, unlike other ancient creation stories where God, through struggle, created the world as we know it out of some sort of pre-existing matter, verse 2 describes that prior to God's creative acts, the universe is without form and void. There's darkness. There's just the deep of waters. In other words, There's no order to anything. It's completely, completely empty. There is nothing but the true God, it says. He hovers over those waters. He is completely sovereign over it all. He's completely sovereign over everything. The Bible describes God creating everything, every single thing from nothing. It was not chance. It was not accidental. There was no hint of struggle in it. He wasn't just part of how it was created, but he was sovereign over it. It was his plan and his purpose. The overwhelming point of the first chapter and three verses of Genesis is this. God is the sovereign creator of everything. God is the sovereign creator of everything. In fact, one of the ways the ancient Jewish writers would bring emphasis to the point of a particular passage is with something that we we call today top and tail. And what that basically is, is they reiterate the same major point at the beginning as they do at the end of that passage. And so we see in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, if we look ahead to that, we see the same things repeated in reverse order that we see in Genesis 1, 1, that there's the heavens and the earth, and that God is the one who did the creating, and that his, it was his work of creation that the first chapter of Genesis describes brings home this point that more more than all the other theories and views on how the earth came or how the universe came to be, Genesis 1 is seeking to highlight one truth. However you view creation, however you think he did it, this truth resounds. God, this God, the God of the Bible, is the sovereign creator of everything. And so God created everything. Great. My guess is most of you came here this morning granting that that was true, or at the very least, granting that you expected someone in a church to say that, right? So why does that matter? Why is that so important to us? Let me give us three implications that I think have massive consequences on how we as Christians ought to view God, ought to view the world, and ought to view ourselves. The first implication is this. If the sovereign creator, if God is the sovereign creator of everything, then the universe was created from nothing. 
then the universe was created from nothing. Now, why is that important? Well, if God did not create everything from nothing, then a couple of things would be true. First, then there would be, there would be material things that could fall outside of the creation that God called good. Now, why does that matter? You see, because God created everything, because the Bible declares in Genesis 1 that he created every single thing, and then he declared those things as good, we know that the material world is not inherently evil. A rock isn't evil simply because it's a rock. Sin corrupts our usage of those things, but creation itself was good at the beginning. And I can really and truly enjoy a mountain view, and I can really and truly enjoy an apple, and I can really and truly enjoy a song, and I can really and truly enjoy my marriage because God created those things and God called those things good. And that's important. It's not wrong for us to enjoy them. But if something exists that falls outside of what God created, then how are we to know whether or not that is part of God's good creation? Second reason, if God didn't create everything from nothing, then we can't say that he alone is worthy to be praised. You see, if, if this thing was also eternal, along with God, then why should I worship God and not this thing? What right would God have to receive all glory and not whatever other eternal existing matter was there? But God's exclusive eternality means that he is the only object that is worthy of our praise. Nothing else can be God because nothing else was before God. If God didn't create everything from nothing, then it would call into question, if not outright deny God's independence and sovereignty altogether. He could not be the sovereign creator. You might ask, well, why does that matter? Well, if God is dependent, follow, follow me here for a second. If God is dependent in some way on creation or on some aspect of creation, and thus not sovereign over all things, then we could not trust that God could actually keep his promises he gives us in the gospel. We would, lose, we would be left wondering, well, maybe this eternal God can pull it off, but maybe this other eternal matter, whatever it is, maybe beats him out. Maybe he can't. So the universe was created from nothing. That's the first important implication of Genesis 1-1 that we see. The second is this, that the universe was created distinct from God and yet dependent on God. The universe was created distinct from God and yet dependent on God. As biblical Christians, we would say that God is both imminent, meaning he is close and in relationship with us, as well as transcendent, meaning he is totally other than, different in kind than we are, above all things. Now, 
follow me for a second. Other religions have different views on this. Maybe you didn't realize this. But other religions have different views here, and each of those views, in my opinion, destroys the gospel message. So this is a foundational truth to the gospel. You see, uh, some believe in what we would call materialism. That is the denial of God's existence altogether. Obviously, no God means uh, no gospel, right? Others believe in what we would call pantheism. Pantheism like in Buddhism or other Eastern religions, says that the universe is God or is part of God, which would mean that God is not then unchanging. God is not then holy because we all can recognize that the universe is sinful in some ways. We are in it. And then the gospel falls apart again. Another view is what we would call dualism related to my last implication that God and the universe exist together eternally and that God and the evil of the universe have been locked in this eternal battle. You can say it's, it's uh, what you might call Star Wars theology, right? The good side, the, the, the light side and the bad side and they're all in this eternal battle against each other, and we're just kind of, you know, hoping for good to win out, or maybe just for some balance or whatever. I don't even know what's going on with Kylo Ren. It's confusing. Anyway, again, the, the gospel falls apart here because, because it's yet to be seen whether or not God will pull out the victory. God can't be the God who keeps his promises because he doesn't know. He can be the God who tries to keep his promises, who has the best intentions of keeping his promises, but that's not the God that Genesis describes. The God that Genesis describes is the God who does keep his promises. Lastly, we have what we call deism, the idea that God created the world, that he kind of wound it up like a clock, and then he, he's letting it run, and he's just stepped back. God's all transcendence and no imminence in this view. He's sitting somewhere, snacking on some popcorn in his easy chair, just watching his creation kind of run its, its course. Well, in this view, obviously, if God is all transcendence and no imminence, then Jesus can't be God, and thus the gospel falls apart again. And so the universe, friends, is dependent on God and yet is distinct from God. The creation is distinct from the creator. The last important implication of God being the sovereign creator of everything is this. The universe was created freely as a display of his glory. The universe was created freely as a display of his glory. What I mean is this, God did not need to create anything. I can't, I can't emphasize this point enough. God did not need to create you. He didn't. Revelation 4, 11 says, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed. 
and were created. It was not out of necessity that God created. It was not for his survival that he created. It was according to his will and his purpose. And God didn't need humans to fill something that was lacking in him, something that was lacking in the Trinity. God had everything he needed within his own Trinitarian self. We shouldn't confuse the display of God's glory in creation for a necessity of creation for his glory. Let me say that again. We should not confuse the display of God's glory in creation for a necessity of creation for his glory. For some, that may sound like a bummer. I might say, God doesn't need you, and you go, well, that's real Debbie Downer, Cody. I was feeling real good about myself thinking God needed me. You see, our heads there get more filled with Disney fairy tale magic than with biblical truth. We think it devalues us if we say that God didn't desperately need us. But that logic doesn't follow. If God needs us, then it doesn't give us more value. It only gives God less value. Let me use an illustration. Hopefully this works. If I say, well, my wife, she married me. Because once she met me, she basically couldn't exist without me. You could understand if that was the case, right? I'm just joking. Not only does that falsely prop me up, calling into question Amanda, Amanda's character as desperate and needy, right? But if instead I rightly tell you how much out of my league Amanda actually is, and yet she chooses to love me despite all of my faults every single day as she discovers more and more of those faults, not only is that more honest to the situation, but it also amplifies the love and commitment between us rather than minimizing it. You see what I'm saying? If God is so big and glorious that he needs nothing, nothing, and yet chooses to create us because he wants to do so, that actually gives us more value. That actually says much more about not only us, but who God is. His love and his grace. Rather than pulling him down to our level in his love, he elevates us by creating us in his image and relating to us. How amazing that the sovereign creator of everything would do that. It's more than I can wrap my brain around. And our, and our glorifying of him is not only right and good, but it actually benefits us, the more we see and recognize his glory, the more we express it and share it, the more we understand it, the more we take part in the glory of God, the God who created us and delights in us. There's nothing 
There's nothing better for us than that. If we hold to the truth that God created the world and all it is and how it works, then we must conclude that in the final analysis, at the very end, it will be impossible for there to be any disagreement whatsoever between Christianity and science. That is to say, if we understood Scripture perfectly and understood all the things that Scripture doesn't speak to and never intended to speak about, as well as if we could observe the world and all of God's creation perfectly and completely, science would only confirm the truth of God's creation in exactly how he created it. In fact, if when we read Genesis 1 honestly, if we read it honestly, we find a God whose power created and sustains everything. You see, that actually gives us, as Christians, more reason to seek to understand that creation through scientific discovery. It should motivate us to understand how a human body works or why a volcano erupts how in the world water becomes air and becomes water again and then there's ice and I don't even understand. I, did, I took chemistry with Nikki, but we did, I didn't pay attention very much. So, believing that God created everything as Christ followers should draw us to want to understand his creation more, to know God through his general revelation and to marvel at the wonder of everything that he has made. And one day, and this is fun to think about, one day, perhaps, we get to learn all the things we couldn't discover here from him directly. It's fun to think about these Christian scientists through the centuries in heaven today. I, I, I would be curious to listen to the conversation as they go, oh, oh, we totally figured that out. Oh, we totally missed on that. No doubt. No doubt when we get there, some things we will have known and others we will have had wrong. But one truth that we can stand on is this. God is the sovereign creator of everything. And at the final judgment, the only conflict that will exist will be between those who want glory for themselves and those who rightly attribute that glory to God. You see, we're all, we're all sinful by nature. We're all glory stealers by nature. We are so rooted in sin that sometimes we don't even realize just how much we're doing that. We try and steal glory from God and, and give it to his creation and give it to ourselves. We try and make God out to be some sort of arrogant uh, uh, creator to want glory for himself, to want to display his glory in all of creation. But the greatest display of glory actually comes from the greatest display of humility that Christ would submit himself to the cross as a display of God's love and mercy to rebel sinners, that God 
the Father would then glorify him through his resurrection. God's glory, rightly understood, friends, brings us more glory. John Stott summarized it well, and I'll kind of conclude with this. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. If you take sovereign creator away from God, then you remove sovereign, sovereign savior as well. And so in the very first verse of the Bible, the foundation is laid for the gospel that by God's power, the cross stayed up as Jesus hung there. And by God's power, the grave could not hold Jesus in either. Let us remember that Christ as we move into communion. Let us remember that it was by God's plan that he sent his son to the earth to be born as you and I are born, to live, to eat, to drink, to sleep, to die, just like all of us will, but then to be raised so that those who have faith in him would be raised as well.